Hey, I'm Charles Post. I'm an Arona ambassador and an ecologist. I'm also a surfer, an outdoorsman, and recently I moved to Lofoten, Norway with my wife Rachel, who's an artist, our dog Knut, and our cat Hannah, and it's good to be here. Welcome to Norona Podcast. My name is Eivind Eislott. In Norona Podcast, we want to inspire you and facilitate great adventures in nature by meeting exciting people and telling fascinating stories. In this episode, we will meet Charles Post from the US. He's an award-winning filmmaker. He's using words and photography to get people thinking about the environment. He started an ecological brand strategy business and he's currently building his education-focused charity, The Nature Project. It's an honor to welcome him to Norona Podcast. Welcome, Charles. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here, Ivan. You look great. Thank you. Do you come straight out of uh, the Lofoten Islands or something? I do. I do. So it's been, uh, we moved here to Norway four months ago and we moved straight to Lofoten where we've been. It's been amazing. It's a wonderful place to call home. But yeah, two planes, uh, you open the door, you're in a new world, you're in Oslo. And uh, yeah, it's really good to be here. It's um, a little taste of culture, uh, yeah. some new foods, new smells, new sights. So yeah, I'm stoked to be here. Do you find Oslo like a, a big city or like a small city? It feels small. It feels cozy. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, I grew up just north of San Francisco in California. And it reminds me of San Francisco like back when I was a kid. Yeah. It has more of an, of course, there's the centrum where it feels like a proper city, a lot going on. Yeah. But then you go just like a few blocks into different neighborhoods and it feels quite cozy like a town and so yeah, it's it's uh it's comfortable this is something for like visit oslo the commercial yeah 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 <laughs> charlespost.com yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you must tell us mm. why have you and your wife mm. moved to this beautiful area in norway lofoten yeah lofoten ah, so much there we we came in 2018 for a job um it was actually with visit norway yeah and the trip sent us to Tromsø, and we were there in March. And then it was just such an extraordinary experience. We thought, well, if we're already here, we should stay. And so we went down to Lofoten, and I grew up surfing on the coast of California, yeah. um, in the redwoods where the coastal mountains meet the sea. And my wife, Rachel, is a skier from Montana. Big mountains, 10,000-foot elevation peaks. And so when we were in Lofoten, we were like, wow. There's both of our worlds in one. You can surf, and then there's these peaks that just shoot <laughs> yeah. up to the sky, like right from the beach. Yeah, interconnecting. Interconnecting, and the, you know, I'd always lived in small fishing, farming, kind of rural communities, as has my wife, and so it felt quiet, it felt cozy. The people were humble, hardworking, connected to nature, and so when we came back to the states. That just kind of lingered in our minds, like, oh, this place, like, Norway exists, Lofoten exists. My great-grandparents come from Scandinavia, uh, from Sweden and Norway. Um, ah, they do. Yeah, my grandmother's family comes from Tutin. Okay. And then my wife's uh, great-grandparents come from Hammer. Yeah. And so there's, a you know, a family connection for sure. Like, my grandma's last name is Norland. Norland. Yeah. And um, so that was a, an element of it. And then when Corona started, we were walking down um, our long driveway we live down the country in montana on a little small farm surrounded by big cattle ranches and farms and i remember looking at an older couple our neighbor and i thought to myself is this it am i going to be them in 40 years walking the same road in montana and it's beautiful don't get me wrong but we thought wow like could we move to norway and so we spent three years working with the team over here and immigration uh, experts uh, to start an AS mm -hmm. and to submit uh, residency uh, documents and get all of our our business documents in order. Yeah. And then, yeah, we were, uh, the government uh, let us in. <laughs> so we're here <laughs> and we plan to stay. You were allowed. We were allowed, yeah. And it wasn't a No criminal records. No criminal records. Yeah, there were a few boxes we had to check and we checked them all, yeah. th thankfully. That's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, 
we feel really lucky to be here. It feels it feels like a real. Um, we yeah we we feel like we've never been happier. So I've seen that on mm. Instagram. Yeah, you look happy, yeah, both of you. We are, and the dog look looks happy as mm, well. <laughs> yeah, he's a Samoyed. I mean, this is kind of like his place, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, mountains cold. Yeah, reindeer. He saw his first reindeer not too long ago in Buddha. Oh. So yeah, it's special. And now you told me that you might just land here and mm. move to Norway for good. For good, yeah, yeah. So, so you have made that decision now. Yeah, that's our. That's our. Um, you know, I think when you live uh, a bit of like a DIY life, right? Like we have our own careers. We've kind of like made them from nothing. Uh, you can't see so far into the future, but as far as I can see into the future, we're here in Norway. Yeah, and it's where I want to be. It's where I want to have a family and raise my kids, future kids that don't exist at this point. But <laughs> I'd love to have kids here. I think it'd be a great place to to have kids. You must describe your new home in in Lofoten. It's a it's like a small cabin or something. Yeah, it's um it's a river like a, a fishing cabin. Yeah. Um, we live in uh, a pretty remote fjord, um, just past Lucknes uh, on the way to Reina. Mm-hmm. And there's at, at this time in the season, our closest neighbors maybe a ten minute walk. There's maybe six or eight people who live in the village year round. <laughs> So it's quiet. <laughs> it's quiet. But there's actually more people. I haven't lived that close to people in like five years. Okay. Um, so it's. I mean, I can walk to get a coffee in the summer, and there's a little there's a little uh, cafe as well. And so that's like really exciting to be able to just walk to a place to get <laughs> yeah. food. Um, but for Lofoten, it's it's remote. But I think in the grand scheme of things, we're forty forty minutes to Lekness, mm. where there's shopping and, and grocery stores and and all those things. Um, But it's wild, you know. It's uh, we're just at the very mouth of the fjord, so we've had orcas right out our windows and sea eagles. Uh, in the summer, you hear the call of the ripa, you know, like just yeah. in the mountains. That's kind of the soundtrack. And then Arctic terns and kittiwakes, which are the seabirds that are so typical in Lofoten, especially in the summer and the early fall. That those are kind of the neighbors. So much beautiful to look at. It's amazing. I mean, you just crack the window and you can just hear. The sounds of Lofoten kind of come pouring in. It's it rains a lot. <laughs> it rains. A <laughs> so lot. Gore-Tex, Gore-Tex <laughs> is pretty epic. I mean, that's kind of like you use your Gore-Tex mm, jacket. Yeah, that's like your best friend, <laughs> Gore-Tex. <laughs> well, how is it up there now during autumn? It gets darker and darker. Yeah, you lose twelve minutes of light each day. That's a lot. So twenty-four in two days, forty-eight in four days. Yeah. So it quickly goes from midnight sun. To the sunset now is gosh maybe uh, close to seven, mm. maybe six thirty. Uh, I just spoke to my wife on the way here. It's what is it today? Fourteen degrees, thirteen degrees, yeah, something like that. It's it's raining sideways in Lofoten, so it's <laughs> a whole different world. You're you're spending your quote unquote summer uh, in Lofoten, and then you see your friends coming to Oslo, and it's like, oh, that's summer. Yeah, that's how <laughs> summer looks like. Yeah, that's how summer looks like. So right now leaves are. Are golden and yellow, uh, and they're falling off in some trees. So some trees are losing almost all their leaves at this point. Yeah, but it's it's gorgeous. It really is. When the sun comes out and there's no wind, and you look at these um, lakes or little parts of the fjord where there's it's just a mirror, and you really can't tell where the water starts and where the reflection starts. No, so it's pretty special. It's like living inside a painting. Well said. It's exactly that way. It it seems fake. You feel like you live in Lord of the Rings, yeah. like full on, <laughs> just crazy. Yeah, this is the Lord of the Rings it, location. Yeah, it should be. I mean, it's it's that epic. It really is. Like even when you live there, you have these moments where you're. It might be the Northern Lights. You might be just getting groceries at the market, mm. and you just like are walking into the car park, and you look outside, and it's just lime green and yellow just dancing across the sky it's crazy it's fantastic it makes it hard to work yeah. <laughs> not very productive in love <laughs> but what do you think about the the upcoming darkness during the winter time yeah it suddenly gets pitch dark pitch dark yeah i think for gosh nearly six weeks um so we'll be moving south yeah uh so you months. escape we're escaping <laughs> it's funny uh And of course, we haven't met everybody in Lofoten. So this is just from my experience, the conversations I've had. There's a lot of people you meet, like, "Oh, do you live in Lofoten? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. So, what do you do in the winter? Oh, I go to Portugal. 
Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Go to Portugal. <laughs> or Grand Canary. Like, oh, there's a there's a tactic here, you know? <laughs> I mean, for sure, I know the dark period, people do love it. Uh, the Northern Lights come out. Uh, it's not like pitch black. If you're if you're listening to this and you're imagining like a black room with not a hint of light, it's not not like that. No. Nope. Um, you have the stars. There's no light pollution. You have the northern lights come out. It really is just a different experience. I think the dark period maybe doesn't even do it justice. I'd imagine because I know people really do find a lot of beauty in those months. Mm. But we'll be we'll be in the south uh, in Hofjell. In Hofjell, yeah, the skiing destination. Yeah, close it, to Lillehammer. Yeah, yeah, and it wasn't to ski; it was just to be central, so we could experience more of Norway before we decide where we want to yeah. settle down. But that is a great base camp because you can go to the Jotunheimen National mm. Park. Mm. You can go to Rondane National Park. You can see so much of the Norwegian nature. Yeah, from that base camp. That's kind of what we were thinking when when you you in three hours. Um, distance in yeah. so many directions there's interesting places yeah so and you can I, ski yeah yeah and we ski jour with canutes that's like our favorite winter activity yeah i love wildlife uh, as a wildlife ecologist going to doverfjell and seeing the musk ox or oh, going to uh it's gonna be great just at Albreen and seeing the reindeer um yeah super stoked it's gonna <laughs> be epic yeah you must tell us about your engagement in ecology hmm. what made you choose that path Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think it's something that probably a lot of listeners can relate to, just being a kid out in nature and being curious and climbing trees and making forts and fishing and just being outside and being curious. Those were big parts of my childhood, and those were things that were encouraged by my parents and my grandparents. You know, I fished and hunted with my dad and birdwatched with my grandma and just... It wasn't this anything extreme. It was just what we did. It was mm. just very normal. Mm. And so when I got into university at UC Berkeley in California, I remember watching a presentation that a professor was giving, and she was explaining these these kids working in, as field scientists in yeah. Alaska, yeah, and getting paid. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa back up, pause, pause. Like you can be, you can get paid to go and catch fish and do all the things that I've done my entire life for fun and so I think that was really the moment where I realized that my passion could actually be a career and there's this really fun um, concept in Japanese called ikigai yeah and it's the center point at which you're the thing you're good at the thing the world needs thing the thing you can be paid for and the thing that you have passion for intersect oh and so for me that was nature and the the logical choice was pursuing a field of ecology the study of nature yeah and so that's what i've that's what i've done up until 2015 when i finished graduate school and kind of switched hats and put this creative hat on and now i've been spending a lot of time thinking about how can i use this background in science to tell stories about nature tell stories about conservation And and work with brands to help them think maybe differently or think creatively about the ways we talk about our engagements with nature, how we mm. connect with nature as a brand or as a community. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And you have worked with a lot of different companies and now you're a Norona ambassador. Yep. And Norona has recently launched kind of a roadmap yeah. towards its 100-year anniversary in mm. 2029. Yeah. And the goal is to be the most responsible outdoor company in the world. Do you think that's possible? I think with the determination and the commitment that Nerona has had for the last many generations, I mean, this is not a new thing for the brand. This has been a commitment that's been longstanding for decades and decades. And so I think it is possible because to, to reach a goal like that, something that's so ambitious, I think takes a track record of commitment. And it takes a, a, a level of of conviction where it's so ingrained into your DNA as a company mm-hmm. that there's no wavering. You know, you, you can look around at, at, at industries, whether it's the tech industry, outdoor industry, automotive industry, and you see a lot of companies pivoting, you know, deciding that the environment is something that's relevant today and, and therefore they should care about it because their constituents and their consumers care about it. But if you look at the history of Nerona, for generations, environment has been at the focal point. 
repairability, uh, functionality, durability, uh, thinking about supply chains, thinking about not just cradle to grave, but almost cradle to cradle. Like how can a product stay in uh, in use? How can that life be extended so it actually doesn't end? Mm. And so this whole idea of reduce, reuse, but then repurpose is massively inspiring. And I think all of these things together set up Nerona for success yeah. because they have the building blocks, the foundation to really commit to something like this. And I think a lot of companies across industries will make similar claims, but I, I would be surprised if, if so many succeeded because they don't have that longstanding commitment. Nerona is also family owned. Mm-hmm. And so there isn't uh, a board or shareholders who are pushing for uh, certain revenue goals every two months or every quarter. I mean, of course, they want to be profitable, but to have Jorgen who can call the shots and say, no, this is important mm. and we're going to double down and invest. And so I think those, those are all aspects that will, I have to imagine, will lead Nerona to success. Yeah. And I'm really, I'm really happy to be not just an ambassador, but as of this year, working with the team internally to think about some ways that I can support with the storytelling, with the ideation and creativity around these these goals and, and hopefully reaching them. Yeah, it's such a good thing. Yeah, I'm stoked. It's going to be, I was just there yesterday and it's like the team's epic. Yeah. So, so much energy and I think you, you need that. Let's dig into one specific goal in the roadmap, hmm. like uh, zero waste. Yeah. Do you think that's possible in such a short notice, like from now to 2029? I think it is possible. I think it's ambitious for sure. But I think if it's, uh, you know, it's like when I moved to Norway. When you tell somebody you're going to do it, there's a a deep, deep inclination that it needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Like you feel it on a cellular level. Once you say it, there's a commitment that follows. And for for Nerona to make that commitment, for Jorgen to to sign off on that and and the team to agree to this i have every bit of faith that they'll follow through yeah you know i think if they they wouldn't say it if it wasn't something they intended to follow through on no so yeah what do you think is the most difficult part of of that specific goal i think the most difficult path of that specific goal it's broken out into a few sub goals but i think one of the most challenging ones will be shifting consumer habits Mm -hmm. we live in a time where Fabrics, clothing, the things we buy as individual consumers are very disposable. Companies are are quickly changing the latest line, the latest product for that season, the new colorway. Mm-hmm. And so I think we as customers have kind of been trained by the industries, whether it's clothing or cars or electronics, to get the new thing. And in order for zero waste to be feasible, Nerona as a brand is going to need a community that responds and makes smart, mindful decisions around the purchases they're making. And then when they make when they make a purchase, to really care for that product and tend to it and get it repaired and take care of it. And when they're done with that product, Nerona is going to have an opportunity for them to bring it back in where it can be reused, resold deconstructed and materials from say a lingen coat can be put into a next generation of lingen coat or into a repaired lingen coat that needs a new panel yeah and so it's really going to require customer not only a mindset but participation Mm. and people can be hard to sway (laughs) you know people have their their behaviors and their habits so I think that'll be a big that'll be a big hill to climb. What type of waste are you hoping to see the most drastic reduction in at first? I think anything that's petroleum based. Yeah. Um, I know we use a lot of recycled uh, polyester. The way I think about polyester is that it is oil. Mm-hmm. These are these are these are f- uh, materials and fabrics made f- literally from oil, and recycling those products keeps them in use longer. And therefore, should take some of the pressure off virgin resources, which just requires more more oil to be pulled from the ground, yeah. which our planet can't afford. And so, I think finding, exploring, supporting, and incorporating more regenerative, sustainable fabrics will will be the ticket. Yeah. And I think f- I I would yeah I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what the what the future brings with respect to 
polyester and oil-based products. Mm. But we, of course, need them. Like a good rain jacket, the ones that I wear every day in Lofoten. Like, <laughs> right now, polyesters in, in Gore-Tex, those are some of our best options. Yeah. So for that type of a product, the best thing we can do is keep it in use. So it's kind of a paradox. It is, yeah. It's, it's the best product, but mm. we should not buy a new one. Yeah, but it's also like, if we all wore wool, there's not enough ground on this planet for the sheep to eat to give every person, you know, the billions of people on Earth, like wool <laughs> outfits. Point. You know, we just have a lot of people. Mm. So some of the best things we can do is keep the things we have in use longer yeah. and find ways to recycle and repurpose them. Yeah. Do you have a favorite goal in the new Norona roadmap? I honestly think the the shifting the social norm is is my favorite. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I've kind of my career as of late has really moved into the space of where science meets the public. Yeah. And finding fun and exciting ways to engage the public through some of this really incredible science that's happening. And the power, of course, lies in the big companies and the politicians, but it also lies in society's hands. And I, I think there's something that's really exciting about getting a groundswell built, getting a, a, a groundswell of people committed to the same goal. Mm -hmm. And if, if we can get to a point where you're walking down the street here in Oslo and you see somebody wearing a Nerona hat or a shirt, And you can tell just because they're wearing that product that they believe in these principles of prolonging the life of a product, of the welcome to nature ethos, how important nature is. We're not separate from nature. We're part of it. Without nature, there's no, no us. If we can get to that point where you and I can see somebody wearing a, a Nerona jacket and feel confident that we're on the same team, same point mm -hmm. of view, that same groundswell, then I think there's no stopping us. You know, that I think a lot of amazing. a lot of big things could happen from that. Mm. We have written a blog post uh, about Norona and responsibility mm. just lately. What are your key arguments when you write about responsibility? Yeah, you know, responsibility is a, is a is a big word because a lot of the a lot of the the damage and trauma that our Earth is experiencing at the moment is generational. So a lot of the the issues we're facing are a are an outcome of decisions that were made 200 years ago. Mm. Um, giving oil companies and logging companies uh, free reign to do what they do and what they've done. And those are issues that started way before we were all born. So these are all things we've inherited. We've inherited a climate crisis. This has been generations of decisions that have led to where we are today. And so I think it's easy to point fingers at companies and say, or individuals, you don't compost. So you're a bad person. You're a huge part of the problem. <laughs> or you're Nerona 2022 and you make Gore-Tex. Like, how can you do that? Like, this is, look at the world around us. And I, and I think it's more complicated than that. I think to point fingers and say one individual, one brand is, is to blame or because the world is in peril, we shouldn't be making a product I think it's it's maybe missing some of the points. Um, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast talking about climate justice and injustices associated with climate and climate the climate crisis. But I think one of the things that Nerona has that speaks to that responsibility is this audience mm -hmm. and an industry that looks to Nerona for inspiration and an industry that is looking for leadership and. There are things Nerona has done and, and I know will continue to do to steer this big industry as a ship. And if we just steer it one degree, the repercussions can be massively beneficial. Mm. And so I think that's where we have to look at both sides of the coin. There, of course, are negatives, right? We all have impact being alive on Earth. We're consuming. We, are, we have a footprint, You, you can't uh, escape that as a living, breathing person on no. Earth. Uh, nor can a company. No company is, is free of impact. So uh, the way that I like to look at it is like, what's the opportunity? How can we reduce impact? But in my mind, the more potent question is, how can we increase positive impact? Mm. And I think that's where Nerona is uniquely set up to be inspirational and successful. 
So in your opinion, Norona has a special place in the industry mm. and a special voice as well. Very much so. Especially, like I said earlier, because it's such a long-standing commitment to nature. Mm. And it's, it's, um, nobody, nobody's questioning Norona's commitment. And so to have decades of experience you can look back on and say, oh, this is where we've made mistakes, this is where we can improve, this are areas that we can maybe look into and invest more, that just comes with time. And so I think Nerona has time on, on, on their side. Yeah, that's optimistic, yeah. enthusiastic. You have and, to be optimistic. And a good thing. Yeah, I, th I think optimism is essential. Yeah. Uh, there's no activist on earth that would be effective if they weren't optimistic. You have to be optimistic. You have to be optimistic. There's no point in getting bogged down in the in the dread. <laughs> no. <laughs> because then what? You're just by yourself in a cave upset. <laughs> and nothing good comes from that. <laughs> you told us at some point you decided to just leave the university and start documenting nature by making movies, taking taking photos, writing about your outdoor life and your choices in life through social media. You have to tell us a little bit more about that journey. It's not every day that your parents pull you aside and say, do you realize how big of a decision you're about to make? <laughs> and that most people on paper would say you're insane. And that was the conversation I had when I told them I was leaving one of the best, if not the best, graduate programs in ecology maybe in the world. UC Berkeley has an incredible ecology department. Mm -hmm. And I had spent my entire young adult career at that point trying to get into that department. I'd done my undergraduate there. I'd worked there. I was so focused, singularly focused on this goal of getting a PhD and pursuing a field uh, or pursuing a career in science. Maybe be a professor at some Someday. Yeah, be a professor. I loved teaching. I taught uh, field biology uh, to undergrads, to freshmen and sophomores when I was there and, and really enjoyed that. Teaching is such a humbling experience. Um, you quickly realize that it's sometimes better to say you don't know and ask the students <laughs> to help you yeah, answer yeah, yeah. the question <laughs> rather than try to pretend like you know everything. And I think that, that was a, one of my biggest learnings uh, pretty early on. You do sound like a good teacher. Thank you. Yeah, I... I enjoyed it. I have, uh, yeah, I had some wonderful students who really taught me, taught me a lot. But so I was in this program. I got in. I only applied to one school for under, or for graduate school, and that was the the program at Berkeley. And I, I got in, which was uh, surprising. Um, I was never the best student, far from it. Um, but I worked hard, mm -hmm. and I and I, I was told that I got in because of my passion and uh, the work ethic that I had. And so that felt good because I think it's easy in this day and age to think that what's on paper matters most, your resume, your CV, the things you can write down. But I think so much is missed on paper yeah. and it's really about people. I think what's on paper doesn't capture the person, the personality, the energy. And so I had that energy going into graduate school. Three years in, I felt like my heart was somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I had some advisors who had done work with National Geographic who understood that there was a place out there where you could talk about science. And in fact, a lot of my peers and friends and colleagues maybe needed some help communicating why their work was so epic and so interesting and so important. And so I thought to myself, well, wow, like maybe bowing out from the PhD, getting a master's degree instead, and then finding ways to elevate and uplift these voices, these people who are just out there doing the work that's informing our policies and our, the decisions our politicians are making, uh, helping to shape the way that um, corporations are, are behaving. You know, the science is kind of like the backbone to the way we engage with, mm. with basically everything in our world, and in this case, the environment. And so I left... And I had that conversation with my family. <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh, like, this is crazy. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do next. Where am I going? <laughs> Where am I going? Everything I knew had been in science, had been at, at UC Berkeley. That was like my whole world. And I'll never forget, like, that day I left. You know, you pack up your desk and close your office door. And I was like, okay, I'm fully screwed. <laughs> like, 
there's I don't know what I'm gonna be doing. But yeah, I I quickly realized that making a film was just like writing a thesis. Mm. It's it's understanding the question you're asking, understanding who are the characters involved, what's the story, uh, how can you balance a budget, uh, how can you think about that story in a critical way to understand maybe areas that need strength or areas that maybe aren't worth exploring. And so filmmaking was a natural next step. And so I uh, early on worked with under a filmmaker named Cyrus Sutton. Uh, he's an Emmy Award winner, really talented uh, yeah, mentor, a friend, but we worked on a film called Island Earth, which was all about big ag, GMOs, and the effects of um, glyphosates, which is a really noxious chemical on people. Mm. And so that was my like, intro yeah. into that world. I've seen some of your great award-winning movies like Horse Switch and Dirt Poor mm. and Sky Migrations. Tell us why our listeners should go and check out these movies as well yeah you know i appreciate you listing those too those are those were two that um yeah were really special to make sky migrations was the first film that i really made from kind of scratch mm -hmm. it was a idea that i had in my mind a film that i co-directed with two really good friends and it was like my first foray into like Charles the filmmaker. Yeah. And it was so fun and we documented the migration of of birds of prey, of hawks and eagles who fly thousands of miles every fall from where they overwinter to where they spend their summers. And this migration talks about the fact that these epic bird migrations only exist because stewardship exists and mm -hmm. because we've made a collective decision that like, it's important to have birds and we should set rules that allow them to continue to survive. Yeah. And so it was a really fun, exciting project. Sky Migrations, hopefully you'll love it. It's it's I still crack up. It's uh, yeah, there's a lot of like really fun humor. It reminds me of when I was younger. <laughs> uh, it played um, it toured with Mountain Film. Uh, it toured with Banff. Um, yeah. played all around the world and I got to host screenings all across the country in the United States and just to see young people who decided to be, you know, to pursue science after watching this film. Um, that makes it worth it. That's a big thing. A huge, huge. Because the world needs more inspired young scientists who want to get out there and answer some of these big questions. Yeah. Um, horse rich, dirt poor. That's a really interesting story because horses, pe people love horses. How can you not love horses? But horses were introduced to the United States, North America. And so functionally they're an, an invasive species and by they, the europeans by europeans by the spanish yeah. and so they outcompete a lot of native animals mm. and so it's this really interesting paradox where we love horses they're majestic they're beautiful they look like they're part of the west right you think of the old west and it's horses yeah and bison and yet the horses really shouldn't be there and there's thousands of them and they wild horses wild horses and they have no predators so this is a really contentious film like horse politics in the u.s is super charged like yeah. it can be a scary place to put yourself <laughs> in the middle of and for a few years there i was like i'll do it <laughs> that's why you moved to norway afterwards <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah can't find me here no <laughs> yeah um but yes yeah, so that's an interesting one so yeah watch it i think that's one of the maybe the most objective film that i know of um, that that I think fairly talks about the just the complexities around wild mm. horses in the United States and their ecological implications. Yeah. So two great movies. Yeah, I really recommend everyone to just go into your laptop, your mobile phone, or just just watch them. Yeah, thank you. Watch them. Yeah, at once. And if you have questions, shoot me an email. I'd love to yeah. to dig in. You also publish a lot of on uh, social media. Hmm. And you are big on Instagram, both you and your wife. You have like 100,000 followers or something, both of you. Mm. How do you feel about social media today? <laughs> <laughs> now uh, I'm your psychologist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah? Yeah. Um, you feel so as mm, well. Absolutely. It's not always easy. It's not always fun. It doesn't always feel safe. 
Uh, in America, um, yeah, it, uh, there are certain topics that are like charged. Mm-hmm. And when you have a platform, it's easy to, yeah, you're exposed to the good and the bad of having hundreds of thousands of people engaging with you on a weekly basis. Yeah. But I really try not to think about that. What I try to focus on is the opportunity. And it's been this long effort, right? Like I've been on social media since 2013. So like nine years I've been just practicing. Like I think social media is like a journal. You just like practice talking. It's like you're throwing a dart at a wall, seeing if it sticks. Mm. And sometimes you miss and it bounces off and you move on to the next idea or the next project. But in nine years of doing this, you start to see patterns and you, you start to see what resonates. So it's a great way to practice your storytelling. Yeah. Great way to practice your writing, your, the way you communicate, uh, your photography, right? Because it's a visual platform. And so it's been a really fun outlet to be creative. It's a tool in my toolbox. It's mm. not all I do, far from it. It's something that is, at this point in my life, 60% fun, so not not business related. It's just kind of an outlet for me to talk about what I'm seeing, what I'm experiencing, things I'm yeah. thinking about. And then of course there's the business side of it too, where it's an outlet for jobs or for for contracted work. Your wife, she's an artist and you come from science and you work as a storyteller. Hmm. Is there some kind of similarities uh, between you and, yeah. and your professions? Yeah, you know, She sees the world in colors, and I see the world in wildlife, and and also in sound. But I'm 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 really looking for the, the living, breathing animals in a landscape, and she's looking at how the color and the light changes. Yeah, and so we both have trained our eyes to see different things, and together it's super fun because she'll notice oh, do you see how that, that hue of blue is just coming off the tip of that mountain and, and notice how the light's hitting that leaf and stop and look at this view and, and she'll explain what she's seen. And then I can say, oh, do you see that little bird on that on that branch? I think that's a, a weed ear that migrated from Africa. And so it's super fun just to kind of like practice seeing the world through a new set of eyes. Mm. And I think that was kind of one of the things that really helped strengthen our relationship early on was this like back and forth. I think any good relationship is like a sharing exercise. Yeah. There's like synergy. Like you, you offer something, they offer something and together it's better. Um, and so I, I, I think that's the beauty of having an artist as a wife. Uh, and then I think she appreciates, yeah, my kind of the lens that I, I see the world in, mm. which, which, which I've seen in more of her paintings, there's more animals or she's talking about it more. So it's, it's fun. And I, and I think in some of my writing, I've, I've been recognizing like how, how light moves more and how that affects my experience. Mm. But she's creative. We're both creative. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about creativity, thinking about Instagram as a tool, Instagram as a platform and other ways to hopefully make the world a little better. Yeah. You know, I think ultimately that's like our goal. Um, How would you describe a normal day in, in your cabin up in Lofoten? Well, if it's sunny, we're outside. <laughs> and it hasn't been that sunny. So if it's sunny... If it's rainy. <laughs> if, yeah, if it's rainy, if it's rainy, you know, she's painting. She's mm. working. Um, she has a little studio. And she, she, she loves that. Uh, of course, we're outside in, in our, in our Gore-Tex and our, in our rain gear. Um, our dog, Knut, needs to be run you know he's <laughs> yeah. yeah he can sleep all day but he, he loves to get outside so we often do that but if it's nice you know i'm surfing i'm surfing at unsta you know putting our unsta collection uh you know and bringing it back to the home the homelands um yeah. so i've been doing that a lot we live right at the base of some really epic peaks so we're often like running up these mountains or hiking to these places and uh, i'm bringing my binoculars and I think we dream about the future. We all do, to a degree, I'm sure. And when you dream, you can't sometimes see the details, but you can see like the silhouettes. You can see like the outline of the things that you hope are part of your future. And so I think to fill in those lines, like a coloring book, like you really have to put in the work to get clear on what you want that to look like 
but also how you want it to make you feel. Mm. And so we dreamed of coming to Norway, but to actually live here and be here has been like the filling in the lines. And so it's, it takes a lot of time, especially as like a, with a DIY career, right? There's nobody telling us how to do what we do, or there's nobody telling me what my next project should be or how I'm going to make my next paycheck. So you really have to wake up with that, that thirst for the detailed work mm. where you really are spending time to like get your mind clear and get your heart clear where you can make good decisions because there's no point in having a DIY career if you're doing things you don't like. like absolutely no point. So you might as well put in the hard work to figure out what it is you want to be doing. Yeah. But then to figure out what it is you want to be doing that can pay you. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. <laughs> so we, yeah, we spend a lot of time. It's like, is this too hot? Is this too cold? Like you're trying to find that thing that's just right. Mm. And so, yeah, you, you know, you ultimately spend a lot of time just working at it, mm. just working at the career, working at the life, working at that dream and trying to fill in the lines. Mm. And then you, and you erase, you know, you back up, you take a U-turn. It's like part of the deal. Yeah. Nothing's linear. There's nothing mapped out. There's no path. You learn along the way. Yeah. You're just like smelling the air. <laughs> you once said, slow down, look and listen to the animals and plants that surround you. What did you mean by that? Yeah. Literally like get off your bike, get out of your car, stop running and just sit and, and actually think about Like, what do you hear? Like, how many sounds do you hear? What direction are they coming from? Is it from a big thing or a small thing? Can you feel the wind? Like, where's the wind coming from? Where's the light? How does the light look? And it's not until we do those things, have that exercise, that we really get to know a place. We really get to shake hands with the place. Like, you've met the place. A lot of people are only interested in kilometers traveled. How fast did you hike that peak? How far did you go? And how fast was mm. that that adventure? That's really popular right now. <laughs> it is, and it's fun. Don't get me wrong. I I love a good run. You know, I we mountain bike. You know, we do the things. We move quickly across the land. Like that's I get it. That's super fun. But also balance that out with some with some with some with some studying, with some observing, with some immersion. Like really settle in, sink in. And then I think you could really start to explain where you are. Mm. And you do that enough over the years. And it's like talking to a rancher. They can tell you about what animal drinks at that water tank at two o'clock on a Tuesday in the summer. And then who shows up at five when the sun's low in the sky? They know. They know. And you get to know your neighbors. And so that's just my approach. Because I think there's so much magic we miss because we just don't stop. Mm. And we oh, don't we're look. moving too fast. We're moving too fast. And then, but once you know, once you start to train your ears and your eyes and your mind to see what's there, but you just haven't practiced seeing, then it's like putting binoculars up for the first time. You're like, oh my gosh, there's like this whole crazy <laughs> epic universe out there that's in right in front of me, but I just haven't looked. And so, yeah, I think that's what slowing down can give you. I've understood that you are a big fan of binoculars. Yeah, it's like a superpower. <laughs> I mean, even in the city, like if you're interested in architecture or like anything, just to yeah. look at something closely. I mean, I don't know. Like, aren't you curious? <laughs> like, you're walking around <laughs> looking at all this stuff. Your eyes only have one, uh, you know, it's like one mode. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can look at things close by, but you can't go beyond a certain point. It's like 50 millimeters or something. You have to like turn your binoculars on and you make a 200 millimeters. Yeah approach zoom in on it's everything it's crazy i mean i have friends who are skiers that i've given binoculars to who are like looking at approaches yeah or lines they're gonna ski down and it's like well duh like why why wouldn't you want to look at this closely <laughs> you know and even if you're not into birds like have you ever looked at an eagle on a rock up close where you can see its eyes blink once once and i remember it for yeah. the rest of my life yeah or have you ever watched the spout of a whale as they take a deep exhale i mean to actually watch that or even like The color in the sky at a beautiful sunset. Look at the clouds. Or you see a big thunderhead rolling over. Like, look at the cloud. I mean, the, there's so much crazy stuff out there. You just, like, <laughs> go look. You need binoculars. You need binoculars. <laughs> I mean, truly. I'm I, It blows me away that, like, people don't have binoculars, <laughs> like, every day. Did you bring them today in your backpack? 
My back, I they're in my backpack. Yeah. I've been carrying them around Oslo for the last few days, <laughs> but I, I feel like naked without them. Yeah, I yeah, always yeah. have my binoculars with me. <laughs> so, Charles, we we're approaching the end of this episode, and we would like to ask you some questions that we give every guest in our podcast. Okay. And the first one is, what's your favorite Norona products right now, right here? Oh, you know. I would have to say my favorite Nirvana product is the Unsta Surf Collection. Yeah, it's so perfectly suited for the Arctic for cold water. Um, it's like a wetsuit that you just bring into the ocean and yeah, start a, surfing. It's a wetsuit. It's a gloves and it's boots, and that's kind of those are the three elements to a, a warm, cozy surf experience. <laughs> yeah. And one of the the barriers to entry for cold water surf is is good gear. Mm. And so I would say that those products make surfing in the Arctic so enjoyable. They're comfortable, they're flexible, they're durable, and they do their job. Yeah, you know. And I think that checks a lot of those Norona boxes. Um, do you think people out there know that Norona is a surf brand? They should. <laughs> yeah, they should come to Unstad and you'll <laughs> you'll be stoked. You know, um, Unstad Beach in Lofoten. Unstad Beach in Lofoten. Yeah, the Troll Vegan Collection is also. That's probably what I wear daily. Yeah, um, it's perfect for three-layer Gore-Tex yeah. against the rain. Yeah, for, against the rain, and then also just the the hiking the hiking gear as well. Mm. And so, yeah, I'm I'm usually in my wetsuit or yeah on the mountains. I, I but I, I have to go to the, with the Unstall collection. I think that's <laughs> that's a super fun one. Do you have some fun facts about yourself? Yeah, fun facts about myself. Um, We have a cat. We brought our cat to Norway. We think she's the first cat from Montana ever to come to Norway. It's kind of like <laughs> a, you like talk to mountaineers and like I was the first to summit this peak. I'm like I was the first serving a cat <laughs> to Norway from Montana. <laughs> um, let's see, a big cat or a small cat? No, just a house, a house cat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, fun facts. I think Sky Migrations was the first Vimeo staff pick film ever to be. Um, Yeah, nominated for that. That was a film based on wildlife migrations. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a fun little little fact. Um, Any daily routines that you are trying to hide yeah, for the audience? Yeah, daily routines. I love football, uh, yeah. like soccer. The European version yeah, European of it. Yeah, European version. Yeah. Um, so you watch football? Yeah, yeah. On television. On the internet. On yeah, the internet. I, I don't watch a lot of the full matches. I like to watch the highlights. <laughs> Just skip to the highlights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do, I do love football. Um, I also have a nonprofit called the Nature Project, which works with professional athletes and underserved youth in the United States, and helps we we create opportunities for uh, underserved youth to experience nature yeah. with professional athletes. Who many of them are American football players. And so, if you're listening, you know of Marshawn Lynch or Sidney Rice or the Seattle Seahawks. Like a lot of those guys, including Marshawn, are on our team and our board. And uh, for that's amazing. Yeah, for six years we've been getting kids outside into nature, and so that's been a really fun project. Um, yeah, I'm starting a podcast of my own that's like launching this week. With, Fantastic. Uh, yeah, with the, with Chris Burkhardt, he's an adventure photographer. Yeah. Um, so that'll be it's called the Traverse. The Traverse. Yeah, that'll be coming out. I have to listen to that one. Yeah. What are your best tips and tricks to create nature experiences in our everyday life? I think one thing that everybody can do is learn the name of two bird species, two different birds and two different plants, two trees that are in your area. And all of a sudden, they'll be neighbors. You'll mm. know them by name. And then they'll mean something to you. Yeah. And I think if more of us know the names of the things that we live amongst, then the value we place in them will only go up. So I think that's a fun kind of tip and trick. And it's really easy. You can take a picture, uh, look it up online, look at a, a nature book, yeah. ask a friend. That's um, a great advice. Also, plant a flower. Even if you live on the 50th, 50th story of an apartment building, if you have a little window and you can put, or even put a flower hanging in a basket out the window or wherever, literally anywhere. Plant a flower and see how quickly bees show up. Yeah. And they're showing up because they need it. You know, they're not there. It's not like a fun game for a bee to go find a flower. Like, this is how they live. And so even if you plant two flowers, 
you'll be surprised how quickly a bee or a butterfly shows up. And that's that's literally you helping nature mm. in a really wonderful way. And you get the beauty of having flowers. Of course. And so <laughs> I, I can't uh, recommend that enough. That's like a really special experience. What's your favorite soundtrack to skiing, surfing, or driving to Unstar Beach in Lofoten right now? You know, I think um, there's a band actually that's coming here to Oslo in November, O.C. and Elliot. Yeah. And they're super cool. I don't know them in person, but we we talk online and I want to be friends with them. <laughs> they're super cool. <laughs> and so I'll, yeah, I'll be going to that show. Uh, I listen to a ton of O.C. and Elliot. They're a really cool band from the West Coast of Canada. Beautiful music, acoustic and they seemed like epic humans, like really, really wonderful people. So that's what I've been listening to a lot lately. Have you started listening to Norwegian music? A little bit. My wife listens to like Sigrid and, and Astrid. Yeah. Um, those are probably the two biggest ones we listen to. And yeah, that's often playing in our house because Rachel loves to paint to that. Uh, Great pop music. Yeah, and it's good. <laughs> it's like you have a coffee and that's playing. And even if it's <laughs> raining sideways out, it kind of like lightens the mood a little bit. <laughs> like a really good thing to listen to. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to say before we have to say goodbye? Any kind of other life mottos or life philosophy? I would say it's important to to stay curious and don't be embarrassed about being new at something. You know, I think moving here really exposes you. I think as adults, we want to pretend like we have it all figured out and we're we're confident, we know what we're doing and we're like good at whatever it is that we do. But it's really it's really awesome to be bad at something to start over even if it's like a new hobby or a new whatever a new area of interest and i so i can't i can't recommend that enough to just put yourself in those positions where you're you're you're, you're learning something new what's a great answer thanks for coming to our podcast studio today and hope to see you soon again Thank you so much for having me. It was an awesome conversation and I'm I'm really stoked to be here. And if you want to get in touch, you can learn more about me at charlespost.com or at charles underscore post on social media and send me a message if you have questions and hope to see you out there in nature. Thanks. Yeah. See you at Hafjall. See you there. <laughs> <laughs> Norona Podcast is published by the Norwegian outdoor company Norona Sport. Norona has been producing premium outdoor products since 1929. Check out our clothes, backpacks, tents, sleeping bags and skis on our website norona.com. There you will also find more inspiring stories about our rich history, the expeditions we have participated in, our ambassadors and our ambitions in sustainability. Thank you for listening to Nurona Podcast. We really appreciate it. And welcome to nature.